It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high seed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Kay and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Laura and Mike. Good morning, Kay. Good morning. How are you both? Yeah, good this morning. Excellent. Good. It's an exciting day today. We have the climate rally in Melbourne, starting in Melbourne at 5.30 this afternoon at the State Library. That's right. For those that haven't, uh, have managed to avoid this news, there is, of course, the Paris COP talks starting next week. Leading into that, there's a worldwide series of uh, climate rallies, people's climate rallies, and basically every major city in the world is trying to have a climate rally. That's over this whole weekend. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Australia being one of the earliest on the timeline, we basically kick it off for the world. And since Melbourne's going on the Friday night, Melbourne's really kicking it off not just for Australia, but for the whole world. So if there's any way uh, you weren't planning to get there and you can, please do. 5.30 tonight for 6.30 out out the front of the State Library. For 6 o'clock, I think. 5.30 for 6. Get in earlier than that if you like, partly because I expect the public transport is going to be full. full. Well, I'm expecting over 50,000 people. This is actually a turning point in history, I think, this weekend and these marches. But there are also other things happening earlier. The churches are heavily involved in this, and there's a church service at 4.30 leading into the, the 5.30 rally. Oh, what's the um, church service and where is it? Sorry, I haven't got it off the top of my head. Okay. Um, if you so search that's in, in people's town, climate... In the... In, in Melbourne somewhere? Yes, it is, okay. quite nearby. One of the archbishops is, is speaking, and it's, it, I think it's basically across the road, and then with a, a view to leading straight into the climate march. And it's been heavily promoted through the churches. I've never seen a rally with such broad people sharing the, the, the same target. So we've got NGOs, we've got unions, we've got community climate groups, of course all the hundreds of thousands of individuals, and, and as we already said, that the faith groups are all strongly supporting this. There is a earlier rally for those that are interested at 3.30, concerned with the, the efforts to push um, the Indigenous people off their land, and that again is, is going to flow straight into this one at 5.30. Mm. Sounds like an incredibly big day, doesn't it? And, it? and it's really good to see that there's so many events around Melbourne that are actually supporting this rally. So leading right into it. And if we're getting over 50,000 people, and that's, I think, what was estimated by the Greens from memory just recently, that's probably the biggest rally I've ever seen in, well, certainly this century in, in Melbourne. Yeah, I think you have to go right back to the, um, the Vietnam War to get equivalent numbers. Well, they were staggering numbers. They were up to 100,000, obviously on a smaller population. I don't know that we'll make that today, but um, we certainly hope to make a, um, a very big impression. 
And on top of all that, I just read this morning that um, the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, has announced that his party is going to have even greater or more improved targets, as far as I'm concerned, for the next elections. So already the Labor Party was, the targets were much better than the Liberal parties, and now they've increased them even further. That's, again, a good sign, isn't it? Yeah, it looks like Labor is saying they're going to go to 45% by 2030, so it's 15 years away, and in fact, to go quite actively on that so that they can even exceed that if the rest of the world is doing better. And that that's fantastic. That's starting to get somewhere near the realistic sort of targets that we have to get to actually honour what the science says and, and have any hope of a safe planet. Because the science says this two-degree political target, and that's all it is, it's a political target, it's not a meaningful target in any sense in the science terms, that this two degree is ridiculously unsafe. And even within that, that two degree is talking about a 50% chance of hitting that. Um, if you 50, wanted, 50%? Yeah, if that's you, ridiculous. If you wanted a 90% chance of hitting that, you basically got to stop all fossil fuel use now. And what are we seeing as the target at Paris? Is that an official 2% or... Are they going for well, something? That's right. They, they are talking about the two degrees they in, are. in Paris. Okay. So well, at the moment... No, I think their commitments at the moment in Paris are basically going to average out at, at 2.7. 2.7, they're yeah. saying. And from what many scientists are saying, that's a very conservative figure. It's actually much higher than it that. It is. And whether we actually get an agreement out of it is it still is very up in the air unless something extreme happens in during the conference. Exactly. I yep. can't see them coming to, to that agreement straight away. Already they're talking about seeing how things pan out over the next five years rather exactly. than what's going to happen at the COP talks. Yeah, I think Paris for me represents a, a dilemma. I want to see a rigorous commitment to the sort of targets that we do need But realistically, that's obviously not going to happen. There are a lot of other people talking, including some that I respect, about using Paris as a stepping stone. So saying, okay, we acknowledge we're not going to get there with the commitments in Paris this year, but what we're looking for is a process that can be improved upon that that does make a substantial step forward, but that actually sets it up for improvements on that. Yeah, well, I think when you're working on with such a large scale with all of the countries, it's important to make targets that are achievable because we don't want to see other failures, you know, uh, Kyoto, which are just too hard to implement. Copenhagen. 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 Um, it's, it's much more important to have the, the dialogue and have countries working towards something that is achievable, uh, even though it might not be what is Ideal. 100% needed. I guess it's more about recognising that there is a sense of urgency now. Well, there has been for a long time, but it's getting to the point where unless something happens now and happens very, very quickly, it's probably too late to save a lot of the species and and people and people's livelihoods. Um, that, you know, 10 years ago, if we had have acted a little bit more urgently, we, we probably could have saved. Mm. And getting back... To that point, Mike, that you raised about the two degrees, I understand that if we actually turned off fossil fuels tomorrow, for instance, if we were able to do that, we would get a one degree increase in temperature worldwide. Do you understand how that works and and is that a long-term 
temperature change or is that just something that occurs for a little while and, and then abates because it's it's specifically because of the particulate matter that fossil fuels inject into the air, I understand, isn't it? Yeah, you're spot on. This is one of the sleepers. And it brings back that this is what's called a wicked problem, that um, the more you try to tackle it, the more tendrils and more complexities you find. Obviously, we know this, that the geopolitical complexities, the time complexities, are, um, we've had our time with carbon and, and why shouldn't others and, and so on. This is one of the factors that, at the moment, we are actually providing ourselves some shielding with the pollution we're putting up into the atmosphere. It gets to high levels and reflects some of that high-energy infrared. If we stopped fossil fuels, or as we stop fossil fuels, those particulates, they're called aerosols, and they actually wash out of the atmosphere fairly quickly. So we're replenishing that pollution non-stop. As we stop fossil fuels, within a few weeks, whatever contribution that stoppage was making washes out of the atmosphere. Then we get that radiative energy coming into the Earth, and that energy that is being reflected at the moment is worth another full degree of climate warming. So what you're saying is that we've already committed to another full degree. That's it. Even if we start our transition away from it. That's incredible, isn't Mm. it? So given that we're already at a degree, Mm. we've got another degree locked in, it makes this talk of two degrees peak obviously as ridiculous as it is. Mm. So turning it around will be quite difficult. I think the the dialogue at Paris will be a little bit different to previous COPs just because of the technology transformations that we've had recently and the fact that there really is an economical argument to move away from fossil fuels. Yes, it's now viable on a straight financial basis, uh, apart from anything else, apart from common sense and preservation of a habitable planet. Exactly. That's um, a very good point, actually. And, and it's a shame that we have to get to the economic benefits before we understand the, the reasons for doing that in the first place. Yeah. Um, now, before we move on to our guest for today, Adrian Whitehead, I'm just going to play A Beautiful Child by Archie Roach. Oh, my beautiful child My beautiful child The brightest of stars Couldn't match your sweet smile But you grew up too soon Far beyond your young years Now all that remains Is your memory and tears Oh beautiful, beautiful child Now you are free Free from this heartache and pain Some said you smiled Oh, I wish I were with you right now My beautiful child Well, they put you 
to blame And they put you through hell Then they locked you away In a dark, lonely cell But you weren't really bad Just a little bit wild Now they'll hound you no more Oh, my beautiful child From this heartache and pain and misery When they took your body that day Some said you smiled And I wish I were with you right now My beautiful child You'd been locked up before But you always came back With your head held high So proud to be black But the last time they came Today we're speaking with Adrian Whitehead, who is the National Campaign Manager at Save the Planet. Adrian has been campaigning on environmental issues since 1989. He has a Bachelor of Science from Melbourne University, majoring in botany, a graduate diploma in environmental management from Deakin, and he completed his PDC in 2009. Adrian's been working on achieving negative emissions and reversing warming since 2003. In 2006, he resigned his position at the Canberra Conservation Council, refusing to campaign for weak climate targets, and returned to Melbourne to establish beyond zero emissions. In 2013, he founded Save the Planet. He's now dividing his time between family, climate campaigning, researching solutions to global warming, and working on and teaching permaculture in the Otways. Welcome, Adrian. G'day. Good to have you here. Thank you. Before we start talking about Paris Climate Change Summit and associated issues, we usually start these interviews by asking how you first became interested in climate change issues and why you decided to make it your life's work. Well, I, look, I've, been, I've made a decision to be environmental campaigning when I was 12, actually. So I was sort of thinking about what I wanted to do with life and thought about earning money or following a spiritual path or sort of following on social justice. But to me, um, environmental stuff sort of had its appeal. And uh, I, that's what I sort of committed myself to since then. And um, my first activism was in forest campaigning and um, did stuff in East Gippsland and South, Southeast New South Wales and helped set up the Otway Ranges Environment Network. We got the Great National Park. And then about 2003, me and Matthew Wright were campaigning on helping support wind farms and getting them established here in Victoria. And that, once you look at renewable energy, you look at coal, you look at its emissions and that led you to global warming and quite quickly I realised that it was, we're in really serious trouble. 
You obviously realised that a lot earlier than most people, so that's a very impressive effort. Well done. No, thank you. We were talking earlier about the climate rally and the targets that the world is setting for, um, for the climate at COP in Paris. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on the, the targets that we have, that Australia has, that the world's trying to achieve. For instance, you know, the UK's got a climate target of 80% emissions by 2050. Australia's got a target of... Reduction. Twi- reduction, sorry. 28% by 2030. Does Australia have anything for 2050, do you know? No, I'm not sure. But, I mean, look, in general, the, the climate targets are political targets. They're sort of they're a response to the strength of the climate campaigning out there in the community. They're a response of how people are framing the solutions. And largely, they're, they're very political. And sometimes they're actually sort of accidental. So mm. the two degrees target, for instance, was a, a target that included rates of approach to two degrees. And that's, all that stuff around the rates of, rates of approach simply got dropped off the two degrees target. And what became the, the catch-all was we don't want to go beyond two degrees. So when we look at our targets, even the 80% figures and the 60% figures that we used to talk about as the, the sort of the 2050 targets... They were just a, a mental exercise that someone did in one of the early climate change UN meetings as if we did this now, we could do this. And they got set in, in the sort of logic. But unfortunately, well, with all the targets, whether it's Australia's or the, the UN's or the England's or whatever, they're, they're missing the real point. They're missing the point that, which what was clearly obvious to me in 2003, that if we look at the global impacts that are occurring back in 2003, and have got much, much worse since, that climate change has already gone too far. If it's already gone too far, therefore, putting any more greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere is pointless. And in fact, if it's already gone too far, we need to actually draw down those emissions. So the targets that we're going for uh, miss the boat entirely in terms mm. of dealing with climate change. And this concept that climate change is dangerous at some point above two degrees is ridiculous. It's actually catastrophic above two degrees. It's dangerous now. Yeah, and that's, that's a really good point, Adrian. And we were talking earlier about the fact that this two degrees is a, a figure that's really meaningless because you, when you turn off fossil fuels, you increase the temperature straight away, yes. as it is, by one degree. Yeah, so, so we've got one degree being held off by global dimming. So we're actually already at two degrees. We've got one degree warming that we we're currently experiencing. We've got one degree being held off by global dimming. So, in fact, we're geoengineering the Earth in two ways at the moment. We're putting gases that are heating it up. And we're putting another set of pollution in the atmosphere that's cooling it down. So there's two counterposing forces that are going simultaneously. And with most of the environmental campaign, of course, now is, is largely focused around the, the energy. So it's the, the coal and the gas and the, the fracking. The other side, of course, is the, the big, big emissions from deforestation, land clearing and methane from cattle and sheep management. And, but you know, if, we, if we succeed in going down the renewables path, we're instantly, as you say, going to get that extra degree and we're at two degrees straight away. So the question is, are we willing? What, what is the consequence of that? And I believe it's going to be quite dire. So the question that's been very uncomfortable for a lot of people at the moment is that issue of do we maintain some sort of solar radiation management as we shut the, the <laughs> coal plants down or are we just going to let that go and deal with the consequences? And the consequences are extreme, you know, it could be well extreme, you're talking loss of countries and ultimately, you know, with one, every one degree temperature rise at some point far in the future, we're getting a 15 metre sea level rise. So that's in millions of people, if, you know, 10 or 20% of the world's population will be on the move. Yeah. So, so with a view to addressing this, uh, amongst other things, you've founded the Save the Planet Party. 
I'd like you to talk more about that and what actual things, uh, if Save the Planet had their way, what practical things would you do? Yeah, well, we've we've always been in favour of looking at the... And it's, it's how we started campaigning in 2003 when me and Matt started what we call futureenergy.org back then, which was precursor to Beyond Zero Emissions. We try to deal with the issue across the entire spectrum, so it's not just renewable energies, it's, it's also forestry, it's also land use, it's also methane from cows and sheep and rice, rice farming, etc. So you would implement an economy-wide transition to as close to zero as possible. So you can get zero emissions in Trasmore, you can get zero emissions in energy, you get close to zero emissions in, in agriculture, but because you need nitrogen as one of the, the core um, substances to feed plants, you're always going to have some sort of nitrogen bleed, no matter what the source is. <laughs> so then you've got to talk about how do we draw down those existing greenhouse gases. And so some of the work that I just did recently was looking at the potential for drawdown using a combination of revegetation, organic um, sort of soil, soil augmentation and taking all that waste biomass that we have or underutilised biomass and biochain. So, and if we, we look at that concept of drawdown, so if we think about replacing growing back a forest where that forest was once, once there, is all we're doing is we're not drawing down any excess CO2, we're simply drawing down the CO2 that was released when we first cut that forest or mm. we first cleared that yeah. land. So that's sort of a zero-sum game. So the question goes, how do we get that? extra emissions that we put up there from burning coal or gas or, or, or the heating from cows effectively. So we want to pull all that CO2 down. And the only way you can do that is by pulling that, in my mind, at, at the moment. There's, there's probably other techniques I haven't looked at, but naturally we would look at all that waste biomass, we'd carbonise it, turn it into a form of charcoal, and then we can use that in agricultural systems, and that's called biochar. And that's very supportive of agriculture if you do it right. Is, is that actually practical in the volumes that would be needed? Yeah, totally practical. In Japan, it's been in their, it's in their 400-year-old agricultural encyclopedia, and they use it on industrial scale. So I've been to the industrial facilities in Japan where they biochar, and they put the biochar back out into, the, into their rice paddies to augment and help their, their soil there. So... It's totally doable. We could take all the green waste that we're currently composting and we could put that into a biochar facility at every council, for instance, or a series of councils could get together and mm. purchase a, a, a large-scale biochar facility and all that could go. In rural areas, you'd have to aggregate crop residue and that sort of thing together in various spots and biochar it then and feed it back out to the farmers. So it's totally doable. And it's like the same sort of questions. Like, you know, when, when me and Matt first were working on uh, renewable energy, people didn't believe you could have 100% renewable energy. Mm. Environmentalists used to argue with us saying, no, 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 it's mm -hmm. 60% maximum. You know, we, we've got to have coal and gas. And we, oh, you've got to be kidding us. So it's just about doing what we need to do. And it's doable. The economics has to be a bit different because it's, it's not necessarily an economic thing to do, mm. but it's not an economic thing to do to allow your coastal areas to flood or to have the fires that we're seeing today or you know, heat waves and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also it sounds like it's a little bit more cost-effective than coal sequestration, yeah, carbon well, sequestration the, and coal. So the other option that people are talking about is is basically replacing coal um, with wood or biomass in sort of coal power plants and then you carbon capture and store that under geological formations. And there's always, that's high cost, there's a lot of risk involved, people aren't sure that's going to work, will it work for the long term. Biochar's the, the substance that causes, you know, was used thousands of years ago to, by a lot of primitive societies around the world as, as, a, as a consequence of the way they did their hunter-gathering and promoted sort of healthy black soils. And in the Amazon, it's called um, terra preta. Mm, okay. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. What else would you 
like to cover is, is prime Look, topics and get the, the, the message out. The, the key message is, the key problem at the moment is the environment groups and the, the, the political parties that you think should be on the side of saving the planet aren't stating very clearly that we need to go to negative emissions. That's the problem. And the time frames that people are talking about are way too long. So it's it's time to hit the panic button. It so really Labor's is. just gone up to 45% by 2030. Yeah. Greg Hunt had his press conference this week spouting how good we were because we were going to exceed his targets. The Greens <coughs> have just come down to one5 degrees as their target instead of two degrees and and basically promoting the beyond zero emissions yeah, uh, and energy plan super australian superpower and that's great but the problem is if you say we're going down to 1.5 then you actually mean we're going to negative emissions because we're already at two so if you're mm -hmm. going to be implementing the beyond zero emissions renewable energy plan then all the coal power plants around the world get shut down and we're at two. So to, so we have to go backwards or we're doing solar radiation so this management. this is what people have both. to get into their head. They've got to get into their head. And the problem is it's about stretch goals. If the environment movement's not asking for what needs to be done and pulling themselves back mm. from, from what we actually need to do, then the politicians have no hope of actually doing what we need to do. And I think that's the biggest problem at the moment, the framing of the problem, how serious it is, and the fact that we need to go to negative emissions as soon as possible. Yeah. And there's an important psychological aspect of this, I think, where it's it's such a wicked problem that people are just scared to face it. And yeah, and it is, but the reality is if we don't face it, then the future will be truly wicked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I just heard recently from one of our eminent scientists that he was saying that many scientists are, in his words, beyond depression about the state of climate change. Yeah. And, and that's look, scary, isn't it? And it is. And the, and the thing is, we, we need to... And people get that at a subconscious level. And if we're not talking serious radical solutions that match the seriousness of the problem, we're going to, we're, everyone will go into, you know, a lot of people go into depression because they realise we're not playing for real. That's the other issue. Right. That, that, that's been very insightful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian. It's been fascinating, informative discussion with you. Thank you. Thank you. And don't forget, everyone, the climate rally tonight in Melbourne. Hopefully, if you hear this early enough in other states around Australia over the weekend. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we have done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at BZD Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next week. And don't forget to listen to our sister show on Monday afternoons at 5.30 every week. Thank you.